This is the story of Nicole Armando, largely told in the words of her defense committee, a group of women who have dedicated the past four years of their lives advocating on Nikki's behalf. Many of the facts in this two-part series have been disputed by Putnam County's assistant DA, as well as others. But the story that follows is based on eyewitness accounts, a mountain of documentation, as well as testimony and other evidence, recently determined to be reliable by the Supreme Court of New York Appellate Division. This episode also includes descriptions of sexual violence. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 2017, Nicole Adamondo and Christopher Grover were the ideal portrait of a millennial couple raising two young children. At 30 years old, Chris was the head coach at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics in Poughkeepsie, New York. His reputation in the world of gymnastics was impeccable. He was great with his students, and their parents adored him. But the children he always had the most time for were his own, four-year-old Ben and two-year-old Faye. His partner, 28-year-old Nikki was the kind of mom who inspired others to want to have kids, and the joy her children brought to her life was obvious and unmistakable. As a preschool teacher, Nikki had a knack for making every day a magical experience for Ben and Faye as well as other children. It seemed Chris and Nikki were tailor-made for each other, but that ideal portrait was shattered in the early hours of September 28, 2017 when Christopher Grover was fatally shot in the head. The person who pulled the trigger was Nikki. It was almost impossible to believe. Nikki was the last person who'd hurt anyone, and Chris was the last person anyone would want to hurt. So how could this have possibly happened? Join me now as we take a look at the case of Nicole Adamondo, where you'll hear the full story of what was happening behind closed doors leading to one man dead, a woman behind bars, and a community torn apart. On September 28, 2017, Nicole Adamondo was arrested for the second-degree murder of her partner, Christopher Grover, the father of her two young children. As news of his death spread like wildfire throughout the town of Poughkeepsie, there was an overwhelming sense of sheer disbelief. It seemed impossible. No one could understand how or why this could have happened. The front page of the Poughkeepsie Journal ran a headline that read, Motive and Killing Remains a Mystery. Nikki's longtime childhood friend, Rachel Hawks, remembers first hearing the news. Nothing about it made sense. I could not make sense of what I was hearing. I felt like I was in a nightmare and my mind could not comprehend any of it. This sense of complete bewilderment was a common theme among those who knew and loved Chris and Nikki the most. 
Caitlin Sanford, who'd known Nikki since she was two, remembers the look on her mother's face when she told her the news. I could see on her face that, like, she had been crying. And uh, my mom was like, sit down, sit down. And I was like, no, I'm not sitting down. You got to tell me what is happening. What is going on? And she said, Nikki killed her partner. And I was like, what? Nikki who? And meanwhile, she's the only Nikki, like, I know. Who? What Nikki? And she was like, Nicole Adamondo was arrested on murder for killing her partner. And I just immediately was like, no, no, you're wrong. You're so wrong. I don't know what is happening here, but that's not what's happening. I can tell you that right now. And I was just devastated. Think for a moment of the most unlikely person you know who could ever shoot another human being. Well, for many people in the town of Poughkeepsie, that person was Nikki. She'd been a gymnastics coach, a preschool teacher, and a role model mother. She was gentle, generous, and magnanimous to a fault. The kind of friend who never failed to call at midnight to wish you a happy birthday. The friend who handcrafted gifts for every occasion. When I went away to, to college in Boston, she immediately, she sent me care packages. She hand-built me this beautiful memory box. She was the kind of woman people wanted their kids to be around. Wendy Friedman was just one of the many mothers whose child attended Wimfimer Nursery School and felt lucky to have Nikki as her child's preschool teacher. Really was just so meaningful to me when I would pick her up from school and she'd be sitting on the couch, cuddled next to Nikki. Nikki would be reading her book and she'd just be sort of snuggled into her, just relaxed, you know, and listening. And for her, that was a big deal. It took a lot to help her to relax. And I think that just spoke to the real talent that Nikki had with children. The parents of the students Chris coached felt the same way about him, describing the environment he created at the gym as a home away from home for their children, a place they felt seen, loved, encouraged and driven to excel. In the aftermath of the shooting, police remained extremely tight-lipped and careful not to reveal any details surrounding Chris's death to the public, including the reason why Nikki told police she'd shot him. And so everyone continued asking the same question, why? Although an entire community had just been blindsided by the shooting, there were a few people who weren't entirely shocked someone had been killed. What did surprise them, however, was that the person alive was Nikki. One of those people was Elizabeth Clifton, who'd first met Nikki in January 2015 after her son Ben started attending a music program Elizabeth was running. I personally had a very extensive history knowing what was going on and knowing the kind of like daily peril she was in, I always anticipated that she would die. That was sort of the thing that I was always bracing myself for. In the following months and years, Nikki's tragic and horrifying story would finally be told, but there were many who simply didn't believe Nikki's story and would never believe it, no matter how much evidence they were shown. To others, 
everything suddenly made perfect sense, like a thousand puzzle pieces finally snapping into place to reveal a picture that had been there all along. But to understand where this tragic story ends, we need to start from the beginning. We need to tell you Nikki's story. Seventy-five miles upstream from New York City along the Hudson River lies the city of Poughkeepsie. Nestled in the heart of the Hudson Valley, Poughkeepsie is a far cry from the hustle and bustle of America's largest metropolis. In 2008, Nikki was an instructor at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics. It was there she first met and fell in love with another coach, 21-year-old Chris Grover. Although Nikki was only 19 at the time, she already knew she wanted to be a mother one day, and there was no doubt that Chris's incredible ability to relate to his students was one of the qualities Nikki found most attractive about him. As their relationship began to intensify, inevitably the subject of intimacy came up. It was then Nikki first confided in Chris one of her darkest secrets, something that had happened many years prior, back when she was only five years old. A traumatic experience that would bind Nikki and her friend Caitlin Sanford for life. We were sexually abused as children by the same adult. That trauma manifested in our lives in different but also eerily similar ways. Caitlin and Nikki met 30 years ago when Caitlin was just two and Nikki was three. As young as they both were, Caitlin still remembers their first introduction vividly. I moved in across the street from her, and I remember her and her mother coming across the street to introduce themselves to me and my mom. And me and Nikki hit it off instantly. We were both very outdoorsy and nature-oriented. We both loved babies and animals, and... We, uh, we've been friends ever since. Caitlin had just moved into the neighborhood after her mother started dating a man who lived with his parents. The boyfriend's father, Butch, instantly became like a grandfather to Caitlin. I mean, I called him Uncle Butch, but that kind of, like, older male energy was, was coming from him in the way of, like, he would watch out for me and play with me and he was always like very attentive I guess I could say and you know in retrospect now I can look back and see a lot of the things that we did together as parts of a grooming type situation. Over a period of several years beginning when Caitlin was just three Butch began sexually abusing her while they lived under the same roof. As many pedophiles do, he also began normalizing the abuse while conditioning Caitlin to keep it all a secret. This was something that was secret, but at the same time, you know, he had looped into like other things like people just wouldn't understand and you wouldn't be able to live here anymore. So I, I knew there was, like, consequences to speaking on what was going on. But also, it wasn't really, like, 
scary. Like I wasn't really scared of Butch. Like there was enough hooks that he had put in of feelings of love and admiration and that type of thing that it was like I was protecting him by not speaking. When Nikki was five and Caitlin was four, their mothers arranged for the girls to have their first sleepover at Butch's house, a night that would change the course of Nikki's life forever. Nikki had come over one night for a sleepover and he had come into my bedroom and abused her as well and I just stayed quiet and pretend to sleep and I think I might have even fallen asleep don't remember him leaving the room. I, I think I just might have went to bed. The next morning, Nikki went home as soon as she woke up, making an excuse to exit the home as quickly as possible. Days later, Nikki's mother, Belinda, discovered blood in the underwear she'd worn on the night of the sleepover. Concerned, she took Nikki to a doctor, but the physician suggested... The bleeding was most likely related to Nikki's gymnastics practices. For the next few years, neither Caitlin nor Nikki ever spoke to each other about what happened that night, but the aftermath of the trauma they experienced began finding its own way out. Anxiety has always been something I've struggled with a lot. I have OCD, so uh, there's certain things that I feel compelled to do. Sometimes I would shower, you know, three or four times a day. My trauma responses primed me to be very susceptible to becoming an addict um, and suffering from the disease of addiction because doing that was self-medicating for me. For Nikki... Her trauma responses surfaced in other ways. The morning after she was assaulted, she woke up to the smell of bacon cooking. To this day, the smell of meat makes Nikki feel physically ill. When Nikki first told Chris about her assault as a child, he was immediately empathetic and comforting, assuring Nikki they could wait as long as she needed before becoming intimate. And so they waited, nearly a year, until something happened. While Chris and Nikki dated, Chris lived with both his parents, while Nikki lived at an apartment complex her mother Belinda also managed. Whenever something needed fixing around the property, a maintenance man named Caesar was there to solve the problem. During one of those visits, after Chris and Nikki had been dating for about a year, Caesar entered Nikki's apartment and forced himself on her, leaving marks on her body from the assault. Like many rape victims, especially those with a prior history of childhood sexual assault, Nikki blamed herself for what happened. Maybe she could have done something to stop it. From that point on, it seemed as though a switch had been flipped in Chris's mind. Rather than being understanding of what Nikki had just endured, Chris seemed to use the assault as an excuse to take advantage of Nikki's vulnerability. Over the next year and a half, as Chris began forcing Nikki into sexual encounters, Caesar again assaulted Nikki in her apartment. As Nikki tried her best to hide the bruises and cuts she was now receiving regularly from Chris, she constantly wore sunglasses and used heavy makeup. But despite her efforts, some people had started to notice. 
It was when Nikki left her position at Mr. Todd's gymnastics and began pursuing her passion for early childhood education that she couldn't hide what was happening anymore. In 2011, after Nikki accepted a position at Wimfimer Nursery School, a director approached Wendy Friedman, assistant director at the time of Vassar College Counseling Services. Although she didn't disclose a name, the director expressed concern for a staff member who was experiencing abuse. I remember right then thinking, I wonder if that's Nikki, because whenever I picked up Freeland, it was not uncommon for me to see quite a number of bruises on her. The director took action by creating a safe space for Nikki at the school, installing card swipe access on the door, providing Nikki with access any time of the day. A sleeping bag and first aid kit were also kept in a small room just for her. There was also someone else who began to notice Nikki's visible signs of abuse. Police officer Dave, a father of one of the kids attending Mr. Todd's gymnastics. In the months before Nikki left her coaching job, he too started noticing bruises on Nikki and verbalized his concern to her. Over the period of several months, Dave became close with Nikki close enough for Nikki to confide in him. She was being abused, but she didn't say by who. That same year, in 2011, Dave invited Nikki to move in with his family and become his daughter's live-in nanny. That way, Nikki would have a safe place to live away from the abuse. However, while Nikki was living in Officer Dave's home, Dave took advantage of the vulnerability he claimed to be protecting and started making sexual advances towards Nikki. Advances Nikki felt as a young woman seeking refuge from an abusive situation she was in no position to say no to. Advances from a police officer, no less. Even if we wanted to give Dave the maximum benefit of the doubt, pursuing Nikki sexually was inappropriate at best. At worst, he deliberately placed Nikki in an extremely vulnerable position where she'd have no choice but to accept his advances. Here to explain the extreme impropriety of Dave's behavior is domestic violence expert Kellyanne Costellarier, director of Fearless Hudson Valley. For me, I have lots of questions when you take a trauma survivor who is in her early 20s, who has been victimized, and they're provided a safe place, and I use safe in quotation marks, and that person is provided a safe place by someone who is aware that they've been a victim, maybe not exactly who they've been a victim by, and also supposedly has skills, training, and experience in their professional role on working with victims of domestic and sexual violence. And the power is not equal, even if from an outside view of even if the victim themselves, like it wasn't as bad as this, it wasn't as violent as that, you're still holding basic human needs over that victim's head. You're holding housing. You're holding food, you're holding clothing, you're holding shelter, you're holding safety. And so when you have the ability to take basic human needs from a person, all while masking it in, here's a safe place to sleep where no one's physically being abusive to you. But in return, I'm going to develop a relationship, and I use relationship in quotation marks, because again, the power is not the same. There's a significant age difference, and you're providing basic human needs. I'm sorry, but you're supposed to have training skills and experience in your professional role to know better. 
Nikki was a victim since she was a child with no support and services and healing and other predators came into her life and those vulnerabilities they exploited. After this chaotic and traumatic period of Nikki's life, in June 2012, she received the happiest news of her life. She was pregnant. One of her first phone calls was to her childhood best friend, Rachel Hawks, who she met in third grade. I'll never forget the moment, thinking about Nikki as a mother, the moment Nikki called me from the hospital to tell me that she was pregnant with her son, Ben. And I remember I was in college, I was in the student union, and I screamed <laughs> um, right there. I remember exactly where I was standing. And I, I just couldn't contain my excitement because this, that was what Nikki had always dreamed of was being a mother. Since we were little girls, that's what she wanted. It's what she was destined to be. And, you know, in that moment when she called and I... <laughs> was just beaming and crying. Little did I know then just how remarkable of a mother she would become. After finding out she was pregnant, Nikki and Chris got a place together, and for a while, everything was pretty great between them. Chris reverted back to the man she fell in love with. He was kind, gentle, and attentive. The man Nikki would forever believe was always there deep inside him. Tragically, it was a belief Nikki wouldn't hold on to for far too long. Because just six weeks after giving birth to their son Ben in December, everything changed. From this point in Nikki's story, there was only one man whom Nikki or any other contemporary witnesses claimed was hurting her, and that was Christopher Grover. Just six weeks after Nikki had given birth, Chris demanded to have sex with her. But Nikki wasn't ready, and when she told him that, he slammed her head into a doorframe and forcibly raped her. This is when Nikki began experiencing a major escalation in Chris's violence towards her. No longer was he demanding sex that was unwanted, painful, and injurious to Nikki. He was now demanding all those things with the addition of force. And once Chris started heading down that path, he didn't stop. In fact, he'd also began secretly videotaping the rapes. He'd always thought of himself as somewhat of an amateur cinematographer. Nikki claimed this was also when Chris began consuming violent pornography online. To explain more about the effects of violent pornography, especially in men who are already prone to being abusive, here is sociologist Dr. Gail Dines. Professor Emerita of Sociology and Women's Studies at Wheelock College in Boston. She's also the founder and president of the organization Culture Reframed, an incredible nonprofit aimed at building resilience and resistance in kids to pornography. Dr. Dines is also one of the world's foremost experts in the study of pornography. Studies show that by the age of 16, something like 80 to 90 percent of boys have used pornography often more than once a week. They're learning and developing their sexual template through images of violence against women. And research shows that the impact on boys is devastating. 
It lowers their capacity for intimacy, causes anxiety and depression, more likely to make them sexual abusers, more likely to cause pornography addiction, which, by the way, is real. Dr. Dines explains how in pornography, men don't make love to women. They make hate and what that teaches the boys and men who view it. And so what we're doing is we're training boys to think of themselves as having the right to ownership of women's bodies and that sex is something you do to women as a way to degrade them. Because in pornography, men don't make love to women, they make hate. Everything you can think about about love is completely bled dry in pornography in its place. The role is how to maximize the dehumanization, debasement, and pain of women. Eventually, Nikki became aware that Chris was filming the rapes, and like many women, her knowledge of the tapes became a tool Chris used to further maintain control over her. Dr. Dines explains just how common this is. Studies show that batterers who watch pornography are more violent. Also, anecdotal evidence tells us that they're more likely to murder their victims and that women often talk about the fact that the batterers make pornography of them being raped by their batterers so that the batterers can then blackmail them with this pornography as a way to stay in the relationship. Because they say, if you leave, I'm going to upload these images onto Pornhub, which they can do very easily. So it's a way to really increase the level of violence and to keep the woman in a state of absolute terror that images of her being raped by her batterer will be distributed onto Pornhub, her kids might see them, her neighbors, she doesn't know who's going to see them because once your image is up there on Pornhub, you have lost all rights to it. In the spring of 2014, Nikki became pregnant with her and Chris's second child, but this time, the abuse didn't stop during her pregnancy. It continued. However, it was during this pregnancy, Nikki began seeing a trauma therapist named Sarah Caprioli, who worked at a private nonprofit in Poughkeepsie. Chris's understanding of why Nikki started attending these sessions was to deal with her past childhood trauma in hopes of making sex more enjoyable between them. In speaking with Sarah, Nikki began to better understand her situation, that what she was experiencing was domestic violence. Sarah was also able to convince Nikki to begin documenting the abuse until there came a time she felt ready to leave Chris. And that's exactly what Nikki did. In September 2014, after a particularly violent encounter with Chris, Nikki went to Vassar Brothers Medical Center for a forensic nurse exam. Just two days later, Nikki was back at the hospital again. This time her injuries were even worse. After giving a sarcastic response to Chris one morning while making breakfast, he suddenly became enraged. Chris then pinned Nikki to the kitchen floor and used a metal spoon he'd heated over an open flame on their stovetop to burn various parts of her body, including her breasts, thighs, and genitals. Although Nikki didn't report the horrific attack, she was at least now documenting it with forensic nurse examiners. But how is this going to end? History of the abuse pointed to the violence only escalating, possibly with Nikki winding up dead. 
2015 brought about the birth of Nikki and Chris's second child, their daughter Faye. It was also the year Nikki became aware that Chris was uploading the rapes and tortures he'd videotaped to internet sites. After Nikki told her therapist what she suspected he was up to, Sarah did some investigating and discovered Chris's pornography channel, reporting it to police in November 2015 with Nikki's consent. The name of the profile was Grover Respect, and according to the bio, the user was a 29-year-old cinematographer into martial arts. The videos uploaded to the profile were of Nikki, clearly in her home and being restrained, with titles indicating forced sex, torture, and rape. Jason Rosillo was the detective assigned to the case. After looking through the channel, Detective Rosillo met with Nikki and told her he had officers on standby to arrest Chris if she'd only sign a sworn affidavit attesting to the abuse. But Nikki was still too frightened to make an official report. After Nikki left the meeting with Rosillo, the detective sent out an email to the entire Poughkeepsie Police Department with a statement that read, She is extremely fearful of her boyfriend. The situation is escalating, and I want everyone to be aware of the names and their address. The victim is Nicole, Nikki Adamondo. The suspect is Christopher Grover. Throughout all the years Nikki was experiencing violent abuse, she poured herself into being the best mother she could be. Her children, Ben and Faye, became her entire world and she devoted her life to them. She needed to protect them from the wicked world she knew all too well. But who would protect her? Little did she know at the time, there was someone who'd been quietly observing her for nearly a year, noticing the marks and putting the pieces together. Elizabeth Clifton, the teacher of the music program Nikki's son Ben had been attending. I've watched her interacting with her kids and sort of coming into my class with bruises repeatedly that were concerning to me on her face, on her cheekbones, sometimes the black eye. Although Elizabeth admits everything she observed didn't hit her all at once, her background in social work informed what she'd been seeing over the course of the year. I would ask her from time to time, like, are you okay? And she'd say, oh, yeah, I am fine. The kids just aren't sleeping. And at the end of that January to March session, which would have been a full year after I met her, I said to myself, and I called my director, and I said, you know, I'm really worried about this mom and what I'm seeing, and I need to let you know that I'm planning to talk to her about it, you know, the next time she comes to class with some kind of injury. And so sure enough, like that first day that she came for the April session in 2016, she had an injury. I asked her to stay after class and said, sort of led with, are, are you safe at home? I'm worried about you. At first she said, I'm fine. Like everything's fine. And I just pushed back gently and I said I don't think that's true because this is what I'm seeing and I sort of listed you know the, the things that I had seen and so she did sort of acknowledge yes that she wasn't safe and that, that it was her partner the father of her children as Elizabeth slowly began gaining Nikki's trust Nikki slowly began opening up to the point Nikki and Elizabeth were messaging each other several times a day for the next year and a half. 
As Elizabeth began learning more about the abuse Nikki was experiencing, she recalls when the violence started escalating. One time I went and saw just like this giant goose egg on the lower ribs. It looked like the bottom rib was like protruding up. It was really sickening. He had impregnated her and then ended up, you know, hurting her in such a way that she miscarried. So I was there like helping her clean up blood. Elizabeth specifically remembers one time meeting Nikki in a hospital parking lot. We sat in her car in the parking lot for like three or four hours. And she was in the middle of a deep trauma response. She couldn't talk to me. She was just shaking and staring and she didn't make it in to get the care. She would just literally freeze and not be able to take action. And I think for people who have never seen that or experienced that, it can be really hard to understand. It is a very real thing that it's almost like, you know, someone has been paralyzed. Elizabeth was desperate to help Nikki escape her dangerous situation, but knew just how deadly it could be for her if she involved police before Nikki was ready. An extremely traumatic and heartbreaking position to be in for anyone on the sidelines of an abusive relationship. Elizabeth did her best to support Nikki in all the ways she knew wouldn't be detrimental to her, even brainstorming ideas with Wendy Friedman, a friend who also happened to be the same mom whose child had been in Nikki's nursery class. By that point, Wendy still had no clue that the same woman the director at the nursery school was concerned about was also the same woman Elizabeth was worried about. The reason Elizabeth approached Wendy for advice was because of Wendy's experience as a psychologist. She opened up and she was very careful. She didn't share the name of the person she was concerned about, but she said one of the moms in her Music Together class, she had been very worried. She had seen her with a lot of bruises and wearing long sleeves, even when it was warm out, and, and scarves around her neck, and just looking shaken, and just, she was very concerned about her. And we were trying to figure out together, I remember spending hours thinking together, and with Elizabeth almost in tears, you know, of what are we going to do to help her, trying to brainstorm and strategize, and how do we get her out of here, and how do you convince her, and, and every day worrying that she was going to be dead. As three worlds began to collide, the three women had no idea the fierce bond they'd share in the coming years would be preparing them for the greatest fight of Nikki's life. I tried to just encourage her a lot to feel like she was worth a better life and worth a life that was free from being hurt because I think she really felt like she was the only one who was being hurt. She felt like, you know, her kids were safe. He wasn't hurting them. And almost like it was something she was willing to sacrifice her own well-being, thinking that she was giving them a better life. You've heard people say it before. Why didn't she just leave? Well, Nikki actually did attempt to leave, not just once, several times something that rings true for a lot of survivors of abuse. Research shows that on average, it takes roughly seven attempts for survivors of abuse to leave before they're successful. That's if they're not killed first. 
Nikki still very much loved Chris, and in her mind, as horrific as he treated her, he was still a good father to their children. What her friend Elizabeth tried to explain to her was that a good father isn't one that abuses, rapes, and tortures their mother. Nikki told herself that everything could be wonderful if Chris would just stop the abuse, and she believed it was possible because he'd stopped before. But the abuse didn't stop. It would never stop. It would only get worse. On three separate occasions in 2017, Nikki's injuries were examined by another professional, this time a midwife. On May 12th, Nikki named Chris as her abuser and tells the midwife Chris has a gun and used it inside her body. She states, Chris threatened to kill her, her children, and her family. On June 14th, Nikki received a rape and assault exam. The damage to her pelvic region was devastating, and the midwife stated that the tissue was so swollen it looked inside out. On August 6th, Nikki stated she'd been tied up, beaten and raped at gunpoint by Chris. This time, Nikki was so tragically swollen that neither vaginal nor rectal exams could even be performed. Six weeks later, on September 21st, Child Protective Services received a call from someone at Mr. Todd's gym stating Nikki had visible bruises on a weekly basis on her chest and face. On September 26th, CPS called Nikki and Chris to inform them they'd be making a visit to their house the following morning for an interview. According to Nikki, after the phone call, Chris packed up four or five external hard drives where he'd saved his videos of Nikki and then left the apartment. The following morning, on September 27th, CPS showed up at their home just before Chris headed out to work, a spark that would ignite the entire tinderbox. Caitlin Sanford helps walk us through the events that day. So the CPS workers show up, they speak to the kids, the kids say, mommy and daddy fight. They speak to Nikki and Chris separately and ask questions like, are you safe in the home? Are you being abused? Nikki answers no. When they're both asked if there are any guns in the house, Chris and Nikki also answer no. After the CPS worker leaves, Chris decides they need to figure out who made the call and that Nikki needs to call around to all the references they gave, ensuring everyone gives glowing statements regarding their relationship and parenting. So after Chris left for work, Nikki began making calls. By that point, none of Nikki's closest friends or family had any idea of the abuse going on. Nikki had been avoiding reporting Chris and pressing charges, primarily because of her fear of him, but also because she was intensely afraid of having the two most important people in her life ripped away from her, her children. All Nikki really hoped for was for the abuse to stop. Her family and friends were completely in the dark so when Nikki is calling and saying like oh this is so ridiculous they're investigating us please just tell them we're very good parents and da 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 they were all very willing because that is really what they did believe at that time so Chris is at work and Nikki at that time is out driving around with the kids 
kind of debating with herself, should I leave? Maybe if I stay, he will stop the abuse because now he knows that CPS is watching. So maybe things will get better and I won't have to pursue the complicated, messy and painful nature of bringing charges and trying to flee and all these types of things. Ultimately, Nikki decided to wait for Chris to come home from work to see what his state of mind was. She intended on suggesting they take a break from each other and desperately wanted to try and make things work. Unfortunately, her decision to try to keep her family together worked against her. And he came home from work and she could immediately tell that something was very, very off and his demeanor, the way he was speaking to her, and she approached him with, maybe we should just take some time apart and let things cool down with DPS, and then maybe in the future we can reapproach things, and he was not having any of it. And he, he went into their bedroom and he took his gun out and he started loading it in front of Nikki, and then he handed Nikki a bullet and he had her load a bullet and he said to her, now's your shot if you want to take it. She hand the gun back to him and he pulled his phone out and he began pulling up diagrams of the brain and saying things like, if I shoot you here, you would be dead instantly. But if I shoot you here in the brain, you won't die at all. You'll just have no memory of anything. And I can just keep you that way. And playing a lot of very sadistic mind games with her. Seeing the rising desire for violence surging in Chris, Nikki tried to de-escalate the situation by creating physical space between them and headed to the farthest room of their apartment with the excuse of taking a shower. She goes and she gets into the shower. And when she's in the shower, Chris comes in and takes her phone. And then he gets in the shower with her. And he says to her at that point, I would shoot you in here, but the sound would echo too much. And they get out of the shower. And um, at that point, he forces her onto her knees and raped her. Although Nikki will later describe that rape as more gentle and that scared her. That scared her terribly. And even though she describes that as more gentle, she still ends up being injured in the way that she began bleeding from the rape. At that moment, Nikki could hear Faye stirring in her bedroom and excused herself to get her settled. When she left the kid's room, she could see Chris laying on the couch in the living room. That's when he summoned her over. Nikki had pled one more time, like, please, just, just let us leave. Let us go. And um, he pulled her on top of him. So then Nikki put her head on his chest and was listening to his breathing and hoping that he would fall asleep. She was waiting for his breathing to get deep and even so that she could try to get up and leave. 
because at this point, he knew that he was primed to kill her. So she waits and waits, and finally he starts breathing a little more deeply and evenly, and she goes to push herself up off of him. And when she does that, he reaches in between the couch cushions, and unbeknownst to her, he had put his gun in between those couch cushions, and she did not know that. So when he reaches in between the cushions and pulls the gun out, she is so shocked by the sight of him pulling that gun out that she goes to jump up. And when she does that, she actually accidentally knees him in the balls and he drops the gun. And she throws herself off of him onto the ground, grabs the gun, stands up shaking, and he smiles. And he turns his head to her and he says, go ahead, you won't do it. You don't have the guts to do it. He said, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do right now. You're going to hand me that gun and I'm going to kill you and then kill myself. And then your children will have no one. And when he said that, he closed his eyes, tilted his head up to the ceiling and Nikki closed her eyes and she lunged forward and pulled the trigger. The gun went right to the side of his head, killing him instantly, and she was immediately panicked. When Nikki pulled the trigger, she half expected nothing to happen because she had no idea whether the safety on the gun was on or off, or even if the gun was still loaded. She wasn't operating from a place of being able to foresee what would even happen. So she was very shocked when he was laying there still. She loved him dearly. I mean, he gave her her children and they are little lights in this dark world. And there were many qualities about him that she did love. And she struggled horribly with the fact that she killed him, but there was really no other option at that point in time. And so when the gun goes off, she's immediately panicked. She reaches her hand out to touch the side of his neck and she feels nothing, no pulse. And at that point, she didn't have her keys or her phone. She didn't know what Chris had done with her phone. Nikki soon found her phone in the sewing room plugged in and began frantically scrambling around the apartment. Nikki grabbed her bag and her phone and her keys, and uh, the only thing that she really could think of was that she had to get Ben and Faye out. I mean, their father was lying dead on the couch. She was just completely in survival mode, assuring the safety of her and the kids. As Nikki was grabbing her things, she suddenly heard something the unmistakable sound of water running in the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom and sees that Chris's laptop is in the bathroom in water. And she tries to turn the knob off, but her hands are numb. She feels like her fingers aren't working right. At one point, picks the laptop up, 
And then, because this is the thing, she had been dealing with her therapist, Sarah Caprioli, and Sarah had said, you know, if there's ever a point in time where you have to leave, grab the laptop, because they had believed that there might be evidence on the laptop of Nikki's documented rapes and tortures. So she goes to pick it up, she picks it up, but then realizes like, oh, this is evidence now. Like I should not touch it. So she puts it back down. Her brain's just not working right. And uh, she goes and gets the kids, puts them in the car. It was now just after 2 a.m. on the morning of September 28th. And as Nikki began backing the car out of the driveway, she attempted to call her therapist, Sarah Caprioli, but got her voicemail. Next, she tried calling Elizabeth, who was jolted out of a deep sleep when she suddenly heard her phone ringing. The phone rang and I saw her name and she said, he pulled a gun out of the couch because she had told me before in the past that he had used the gun to violate her and also used the gun. In one case, she had told me that he had put it in her mouth and said, you know, if you try to take my kids, I'll kill you. So what I imagined was that he had a gun that she was fleeing. As Elizabeth tried to make sense of what Nikki was hysterically saying on the other end, she attempted to convince her to come to her house before hanging up. Scared, confused, in complete shock, and unsure of what to do, Nikki drove along the empty streets of Poughkeepsie when she pulled up to a red light. While sitting at the intersection, Nikki froze. She could either turn left toward the police station or drive straight in the direction of where Elizabeth and Sarah lived. When the light turned green, Nikki's car didn't move. Suddenly, a police officer pulled up behind her and honked an air horn. That's when Nikki stepped out of her car and began frantically speaking to the officer. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was in the midst of preparing a place for Nikki's car in her garage, thinking she was on her way. A few minutes later, she suddenly got a second call from Nikki. I was working on clearing out a space in my garage for her car when she called back and said that she was with the police. That's all I knew at that time, that she was with the police. And could I come meet her? So I got in my car and I drove to where she said she was. And her car was at the stoplight and there was a police car behind her. And she and the police officer, I think, were like between the two cars. And I rolled down my window and said, you know, I'm, I'm her friend. She called for me to come. And they said, okay, go on down the road to this bowling alley parking lot and wait there. As Elizabeth waited for police to speak with Nikki for what felt like an hour, she worried. As far as she knew, Chris could be out there somewhere after Nikki with a gun. In all reality, Elizabeth had no idea what was happening. The moment where I started to wonder was when I saw an ambulance like going in the direction of where their apartment was, and then I saw it coming back with no lights on. I don't know, I just started to wonder what had happened. Finally, a police officer approached Elizabeth and took down her information requesting she head down to the station to watch Ben and Faye while they continued questioning Nikki. 
After Nikki was taken to the station and began answering the officer's questions, she suddenly began to realize what she believed was self-defense was being viewed by police as something else. Of course, they don't say we're interrogating you. They try to come off like we're just trying to figure out what's going on here. She tells them to the best of her ability what had transpired. And the detective who's interviewing her goes, well, you know what helps a lot of people? It helps them to tell their story backwards. So start now and work backwards. And Nikki says, like, what? I I don't even know if I can do that. Like, am I making sense? Like, she starts to understand slowly that something's wrong. And Chris had always told her, he drilled it into Nikki's head that no one will ever believe you. No one will believe you. Because he had this job with teaching gymnastics to small children and both of their families and groups of friends weren't aware of this. And um, Nikki believed him. In that moment, Nikki discovered that Chris had been right all along. No one would believe her. As it dawned on her that detectives were speaking to her as a suspect rather than a survivor, she wisely asked for a lawyer. And as soon as she did, she was arrested for the murder of Christopher Grover. When Ben and Faye fell asleep on September 27th, they were tucked in tight, dreaming dreams only a child could imagine. Secure in their knowledge that outside their bedroom door, they had a father and mother who loved them dearly. The following day, they were both taken from them. Their father was gone forever, and the one person they needed more than anyone else in the world had been arrested and taken away before they even had a chance to say goodbye. It wasn't just an ideal family portrait that had been shattered that terrible night in September. It was also the innocence of two blameless children. In part two, we'll examine the aftermath of Nikki's arrest, her trial, and the darker side of our justice system that all too often punishes and criminalizes survivors of domestic violence. If you felt moved by Nikki's story, you can help by signing her clemency petition or by donating to a trust fund set up for her children through the links we provided in our show notes. To find out more, visit WeStandWithNikki.com and at WeStandWithNikki on Instagram and Facebook. We'd also like to say a special thank you to Nicole Automondo's Defense Committee for all their time and help in producing this episode. We'd also like to thank Dr. Gail Dines for sharing her wealth of knowledge on the subject of pornography. If you'd like to donate or find out more about our organization, Culture Reframed, we've provided links in our episode notes. Finally, we'd like to give a huge thank you to Jolene for composing this song, You Are the Safety, for Nikki's episodes. I gave you every part of myself Cause our love was eternal It was more than a mortal could give You live and you learn That there's always a limit You never know it till it hits you
Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.